As I said, there were many different things that happened down in Honduras, but there were two incidents in particular in my experience there that led to the sermon that I'm going to to preach today. And don't worry, I knew that uh, probably the time limit would not be kept by our different speakers this morning, so I have an abbreviated sermon this morning. Um, But I do want to share a couple of stories with you as I get into the message. And these these were what really led me to, there were two particular incidents that happened while I was in Honduras, while we were in Honduras, that, um, that really brought this specific passage we're looking at today to my mind. The first was the, the early team that went down there, we had the opportunity to visit El Crematorio, which is simply the city dump right outside of Tegucigalpa. Now you've heard us talk about the dump before outside of Tegucigalpa. It's, uh, it's also mentioned in David Platt's book, Radical. Um, the dump is literally a mountain of trash where the vultures and there's cattle up there, dogs and children all fight for the same prizes. It's an absolutely horrific place. It's probably the most horrific place I've ever visited in my life. And we went because at the foot of the mountain of trash is a school called Afe. And that was one of the locations we were considering as a potential place of doing a future well baby clinic. And the school is doing amazing ministry to the children that are up there. But as I'm up there on the we got a chance to go up there and, and pass out some food to some of the people living up there. Many There's 1,300 or 1,500, something like that, people who are up on top of that mountain of trash on any given day. And many of them live in the trash. They will take what they can find and build a shelter for themselves. It is the closest thing that I can think of to hell. Jesus refers to Gehenna as hell, and Gehenna was the place outside of Jerusalem where they, they threw all the refuse. And in this mountain of trash, there is toxic waste, there is even sometimes dead bodies. And these kids are up there searching for things that they can sell to make money. It's an absolutely horrific place. As I'm standing there on this mountain, and the smell knocks you almost knocks your socks off. The moment you begin to get close to it, you begin to smell it. But when you get on top of it, it's amazing. Matter of fact, the clothes we had on were so infected with the smell, we, we, we couldn't do anything with them afterwards. We tried washing them, and the smell wouldn't come out. But I was, I was up there, I was thinking, and I was struggling with the justice of God. <laughs> I wanted to be, as Romans 11 says, we can't be, God's counselor. And say, why? Why these children born into this? Why a mother who has a baby on that dump puts a baby in a carton container and leaves him there all day so she can do work and comes back and hopes he's still there and hasn't gotten run over by one of the big dump trucks that comes in there every day? Why, God? And God had to bring me back to the passage we're going to look at today to remind me of who he is. The second incident was this lady here, her name is Maria. We weren't actually there to visit Maria. This was one of our days we were doing prayer walking, which is basically going to different homes and, and sharing the gospel with them and praying with them. And it's, we usually have teams that are too big for everyone to go to a home. So while one team's inside, the other team is supposed to be outside praying. And, and so we went to visit actually Mariana, who's the, you can barely see her head. She's behind Maria here. 
she was the dueña of the home. She's the, the homeowner. And we were there. We were in this little town and absolutely in the middle of nowhere. Um, Corderia is the name of the town. We are absolutely, it took us an hour to get there in the middle of nowhere. And so we're going house to house. The majority of the people there are Catholic. And Mariana, the lady who owned the house, was Catholic. And we began to talk to her a little bit about the gospel. But she kept talking about, she kept changing the conversation. And we weren't really going very far. One of the guys in our group was trying to share his testimony. It was actually Hector, our translator, who was sharing his testimony. It was the first time he'd ever shared his testimony, by the way. And all of a sudden, Maria, who's been sitting there quiet the whole time, begins to talk. And Maria begins to talk and she begins to proclaim that Jesus can only be known by faith alone. By grace alone, through faith alone. And she says, we cannot work to earn our relationship with God. And she proceeds to tell us that she's a Baptist. Amen. And goes on to them to just give us an exposition of the gospel. And then goes on to say, there are so many false teachers out there. Because there was no really strong evangelical presence in this town. But there were some other towns that had churches. And she was talking about churches that that allow um, uh, men to preach who are really not qualified to preach. And she was going on. I mean, if she lived in America, she'd have a discernment blog, all right? She was just going on and on and on about what was wrong with a lot of the churches. And she kept coming back to the Bible. And we were just stunned by her testimony here in the middle of nowhere. And so I was asking her, I said, well, how did you come to know Jesus? Because I was wanting to, was it another missionary team that came through? Maybe some local pastor? How did you come to know Jesus? And she looked at me and said, by reading my Bible, of course. (laughs) And once again, I was reminded that God does not need me. He does not need any of us. And I was brought again to the passage that we're going to look at today. So these two events were events that the Lord used to bring to my mind Acts 17, 22 through 36. So open up there if you would. Acts chapter 17, verses 22 through 36. Now we're only going to focus on verses 24 through 27. But I want to read the whole context of this passage. Now what's happening here is that Paul has been preaching and he's been doing his missionary work. He went to Thessalonica. And there in Thessalonica he was rejected by the Jews and run out of town, and then he went to Berea, and the Jews in Berea were more noble than the ones in Thessalonica. They received the word with gladness, but they examined the scriptures to see if what Paul was saying was actually true. And there were many who began to believe, but then the Jews from Thessalonica followed Paul over to Berea. They stirred things up and get, get, the, get things so stirred up that the brothers fear for Paul's safety, and they send him off to Athens. They send him to Athens ahead of the rest of the team. So Paul arrives in Athens... And as he's there waiting for Silas and Timothy to come, he is greatly troubled in his spirit by the idolatrous pluralism that marked the city. So again, Paul does what he normally does. He goes to the synagogues and and preaches to the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles that were in the synagogue. But he also began to reason and converse with the Greeks in the marketplaces, including Stoic and Epicurean philosophers. And to them, what Paul was saying was something new, something outside of their worldview. So they they implored Paul to come and to speak at where the intellectual elites gathered during that day. And it was the place called the Areopagus. So with that background, what we have here is Paul's speech at the Areopagus to 
these philosophers, to the intellectual elites of his day. So we're going to begin in verse 22. Again, we're going to focus on verses 24 and 27. But we're going to read all the way down to verse 34. So please stand, if you would, as we read God's word this morning. And as you're standing, I'll implore you to be patient with me. Because once again, I have no voice. Acts 17, beginning in verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Demarius. And others with them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we examine this passage of Scripture this morning, I pray that you prepare our hearts and our minds. And Lord, we confess our sin to you. As Deemer prayed earlier for us to remember that we are not sufficient in and of our own selves, we are not autonomous beings. We are totally dependent upon you for every breath we take. So God, forgive us of the sins that we've committed this week, including the sins of ignoring your providential rule in our lives. The sins of thinking more of ourselves than we ought. We pray now that you prepare our hearts for the word, give me a mouth to speak, and give all of us ears to hear. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Some of y'all heard this story before. When I was graduated from college, I graduated with a video production degree. I was a video producer, and I had learned how to produce videos. Now, um, the way we produced videos in college was you have a tape. Okay, it was a, a tape that you stick into a machine, and you have a blank tape you stick into the other machine, and you pick what points that you want. You hit the start point and the end point, and it physically records what's on this tape over to this tape. And then you find your next tape and stick it in. It was a long process, and that's how you edited videos. And if you made a mistake somewhere in that editing process, you had to go back and start back over from wherever the mistake was. And that's how I learned to do video production in college. And I graduated in 1994, and I got my first job shortly after that at 
um, Hendrick Medical Center, where I was supposed to be the video, um, video AV guy, include, which included some video production work. And so they take me to the, to the room where I was to do the video production stuff. Matter of fact, they already had a video they were waiting to hire someone, so they were waiting to do. And they say, they bring me into this room and say, here's our video production equipment. And I look in there, and I don't see anything that I recognize. I don't see the, the big tape machine that you stick the tape in over here, and then the other tape machine with the two monitors you need and all that. I'm like, where? And the editing controllers, nothing was in there. And they said, well, it's right there. And they pointed over the, to, the, to the corner of the room, and there was a computer sitting there. And I said, what? They said, that's our, that's our editing equipment. And I said, what? I had not learned computers in college I don't know how to edit videos on a computer. Now, that's the only way videos are edited today, including the movies you watch. They're, they're all edited digitally on a computer. But in 1994, this was new. I did not learn this. I was experiencing a massive paradigm shift, and I was fearful because I was hired to edit videos, and I didn't know anything that I was doing with this computer junk over here. And it was a fearful time for me. Now, the reason I tell the story is because... Everything that I knew, everything that I understood about video production had to be changed. Now you can edit non-linearly. Before it was linear editing, now it's non-linear. So you can go back and you can fix mistakes and you can shift things and all. It's really great now that it's on computers. But I still had to learn it all because my understanding, my foundation was in a different place. Now we need to understand that's what Paul is doing in Athens. He's coming to people who have an absolutely different worldview. They have no concept, really, of the God that Paul is speaking of. And so what he is doing as he comes here, he's kind of deconstructing their worldview. The way Paul approaches the Greeks is very different than the way he would go into the synagogue. When he goes into the synagogue, what he's, what he's speaking to in the synagogue are Jews, God-fearing Gentiles, or even proselytes, Gentiles who become Jews, who already have a working understanding of the Scriptures. They have the Old Testament. They know the God of the Old Testament. So he can come in and begin to reason from the Scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. But in this case, he can't do that because they have a completely different worldview. They're like video editors that are expecting one thing and getting another. Now, there's something we can learn from that because our culture is increasingly post-Christian. There was a day when I was a kid, pretty much everybody had a Judeo-Christian worldview in the sense that they at least had a basic framework of a monotheistic God, of a God who had given us a word in an Old Testament and a New Testament. They may not know much more than that, but at least it was a basic framework. So when you tried to evangelize someone, you didn't have to reset the worldview. But what's happening more and more, and this should help us with our evangelism, is that we live in a post-Christian world where people absolutely have no idea what we're talking about. And so we should learn from Paul that sometimes we have to find a different starting point. Sometimes we have to start a little further back and establish the whole story. And that's what Paul is doing here. He's starting a little bit farther back. What he wants to do is to take these Athenians on an exploration of the nature of the one true God. He's going to reset their worldview, and then he's going to draw some conclusions about that, that what he's saying about the one true God. And what I want us to do this morning is not necessarily look at, look at, um, at, at the specifics of, of, of Paul's sermon as far as how he is, is doing missiology, how he is reaching the Athenians, but, but I want to look at, as he talks here about the true nature of God, I want to look specifically at that and see what conclusions we can draw about how and why we do missions as a church. 
So with that in mind, I want to first set the stage by briefly examining the three basic truths that Paul is claiming about the one true God. A basic threefold structure regarding the nature of God that Paul mentions in other places, by the way, in Scripture in a more condensed form. But here it's expanded. And after looking at that threefold structure of the nature of God, I want us to draw two conclusions about missions. So in your notes, the first thing we want to see is that Paul proclaimed that God is the source of all things. It's all from him. God is the source of all things. It's all from him. We read in verse 24 that the God that Paul is proclaiming is the God who made the world and everything in it. The God who made the world. Paul immediately begins to dismiss the Athenians' polytheistic views by saying that there is one God who is creator. He is the one source of all things. And at the same time, Paul is dismissing their pantheistic view by claiming that God is outside of creation. Paul is claiming that there's one true, uncreated God. He is completely outside of creation. He is otherly, if you will. He is utterly separate. He is holy. He is the unique originator of all things. But Paul doesn't just claim that God created the world in a general sense. No, we read that he made the world and everything in it. Everything in it. He was, he was actively involved in the creation of the, even, even the, the most tiniest things in creation. He was actively involved in the particulars, not just in a general sense. He was involved in the, in the, 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 the creation of big things such as planets, stars, and mountains. But he's also intimately involved in the colorful patterns on a butterfly's wings. And the complex structure of the, the flagellum on the tiniest microscopic organism. The Athenians braced a view that there were various gods who created and ruled over specific domains. But not over the whole world like Neptune being the god of the sea. But Paul is proclaiming a god who is lord of heaven and earth in verse 24. He is sovereign over all because he created everything. He created the world and everything in it. So Paul begins by destroying their concept of God, claiming that there's only one true God who is the source of everything. But he goes on. He goes on to show that God is the sustainer of all things. It's all held together through him. The Epicureans, some of the philosophers that are listening to Paul here, they believed in a distant God, a detached first cause, an unapproachable God who had nothing to do with the affairs of man. But Paul declares a worldview that is completely the opposite of what they believe. In verse 25 he says, He, that means God, himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He gives to all mankind. That is present tense. God is actively involved in giving life to all mankind. He didn't just get, he didn't get, it wasn't that he gave life to mankind and then allows man to just go on his way. He is actively involved in the giving of life. He sustains it. He is no mere divine observer of what he created. Instead, he is the preserver of what he created. He gives, and he gives to all mankind, everyone. No one, no being is outside of his providential oversight. He gives to all mankind life. We are only alive today because of God's sovereign decree. And the moment he chooses, our life leaves us. How foolish man is to think that he's independent and autonomous. 1 Samuel 2, 6 says, The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. 
He gives life, but not just life. He gives everything we need for life. That's why we read here he gives breath and everything. Breath. We are only breathing because each breath has been given to us. Every breath you take is a gift from God. How often do we go about breathing? I mean, we breathe all the time without even thinking about that. But if we're not acknowledging that, thinking about that, knowing that each breath is a gift from God, we're, we're air thieves. Taking from God what he has given without acknowledging the giver. Paul goes on to say that he gives everything. Nothing, no moment, no incident, no accident is outside of his providential rule, including dangerously high blood pressure that onsets while you're in a third world country that practices medicine akin to the Middle Ages, all right? Every bit of it's from him. The Apostle Paul, in these claims, is undoing their worldview, claiming that God is the source of all things. He's the active sustainer, preserver of all things. But he's not done. The next thing he claims that God is the scheme of all things. What I mean by scheme is simply the plan or the purpose or the meaning of all things. All things ultimately find their purpose in him. It all exists to glorify him. Look down now at verse 27, where we read that God's providential rule over man was designed. Why? That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. In other words, man was created for God, to know God, to worship God. And this was completely foreign to the Athenians' worldview. They prided themselves on knowing all that was necessary about the gods. So to see themselves as lost men groping in the darkness was highly insulting to them. So we see Paul's threefold presentation about the nature of God. And it should sound very familiar to us, shouldn't it? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever, Romans eleven thirty six. First 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Yet for there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, through whom we exist. Colossians 1, 16. For by him... All things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers and authorities. All things were created through him and for him. From him, through him, and to him. Now, what does this mean for missions? What does this mean for us when we think about missions? Well, if God is the source of all things, and if God is the sustainer of all things, and if God is the scheme of all things, there are certain things that must be true, and they're mentioned here in this text. Look back at verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Verse 25, listen closely. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. So here's how I want to apply it to missions this morning. I'm going to give you your next point in your notes. We dishonor God if we go on mission as if God is needy. We dishonor God if we go on mission as if God is needy. The God from whom, through whom, and to whom are all things does not need man, period. He does not need you. He does not need me. He does not need me to help correct his sense of justice as I'm standing on the dump. And as he reminded me, he does not need me to get the gospel to an old lady in a little village in the middle of Honduras. This has to be our missiological starting point. There is a way to go on missions where we treat God like he needs us. 
Maybe you've heard this before, something along these lines. God desperately needs social justice warriors to fix our broken world. If we don't go, injustice will thrive. Or maybe you hear this. God desperately needs missionaries to go for him and spread the gospel. If we don't go, there will end up being people who would have trusted in Jesus but couldn't because of your disobedience. Quite frankly, sometimes we go on mission both globally and locally thinking way too much of ourselves. Romans 13, 11, 35 again. Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Sometimes we go on missions trying to get something. God, I'm, I'm serving you. I'm sacrificing for you. I'm going to Honduras. I'm experiencing seven days of diarrhea for you, God. Surely you'll bless me now. Who has given a gift to him that they might be repaid? Tell me. It's a rhetorical question. God does not need man. God does not need missionaries. God does not need worshipers. This is called the doctrine of the aseity of God. God is all-sufficient. He has no source. He has no need. He is self-existent. I am who I am is his name. Yes, this world is broken. And yes, injustice exists. And yes, there are places where the gospel has not been heard. But we must understand that these things are not the result. Listen to me. These things are not the result of any deficiency or weakness or short-sightedness on God's part. The dump exists, yes. But not outside the providence of God. He knows what he is doing Beware of ministering to hurt people in a manner such as that you think you're improving upon the justice of God. Romans eleven thirty four. back it up one verse from the verse we just read a minute ago. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? The verse that was coming to my mind as I was standing on the dump was verse 26 of today's passage. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. We have to believe these truths or else we have the wrong missiological starting point. But wait, you say, doesn't God want to use us? Doesn't God want us to go? Doesn't God want us to spread the gospel to all nations? Doesn't God want us to feed the hungry, serve the helpless? Doesn't God want us to stand up against injustices? Yes, 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 and yes. But we go not because he is needy. We go because he is worthy. Let me say that again. We go not because our God is needy. We go because our God is worthy. Romans 11, again. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. He does not need man, but he is worthy of image bearers. He does not need missionaries, but he is worthy of his name being spread across the face of the earth. He does not need worshipers, but he is worthy of those for whom he gave his only son. We go not because he is needy, but because he is worthy. 
Revelation 4.11 says, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And the way we express our, the worthiness of God is to worship him. That's what worship means, to recognize his worth. So we go and we serve and we preach out of obedience and out of love and out of worship of our God who is infinitely worthy of the praises of all people, of all nations. God sends us out, not out of his need, but he sends us out for his glory. It was after he declared to Moses in Exodus 3.14, I am who I am, that he orders Moses, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. The all-sufficient God sends people. And his people, like Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, when they see his glory, the glory of the all-sufficient God, his people say, here I am, send me. They want to go. They want to proclaim his excellencies as an overflow of their worship of the great I am. That's why we do missions. We do not go to Honduras to fill some deficiency in God, but to glorify God. You do not share the gospel with people to bridge a weakness in God's message, but to glorify God who is the message. You do not stand against abortion because God can't exercise justice, but rather to reflect his justice. We were created as an overflow of his glory to be image bearers of the Almighty. And so we go, we go and we proclaim the gospel of reconciliation so that more men and more women might glorify God. So that men might be united to Christ, conform to his image, and once again reflect the glory of God as they were created to do. So our motive for going and the goal for going are both the same, the glory of God. Our goal and our motive are the exact same. The glory of God. We go, we serve, we preach for his glory. He is not a needy God. He is a worthy God. And what more? When we go, when we do go, when we serve, when we preach, the very act of our going, of our serving, of our preaching is itself designed to glorify God. The very act, for not only is the glory of God our motive and our goal, the glory of God is seen in that without God working in us, we can do nothing. We cannot go, we cannot serve, we cannot preach unless God is doing it in and through us. This week in your, in, in your little bulletin there, you're connecting church and home. There's a quote in there from John Calvin's uh, commentary on um, Paul's first epistle. Actually, the, Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. And this is a quote from Calvin. We should learn... I'm sorry, we should therefore learn that the only good we have is what the Lord has given us gratuitously. The only good we do is what he does in us. That is not that we do nothing ourselves, but that we act only when we have been acted upon. In other words, under the direction and the influence of the Holy Spirit. You see, we are not only going to needy people, we have to realize we are needy people. Needy people going to needy people to proclaim an all-sufficient God. Lest any in here go and serve in any capacity, whether it be locally or globally, lest any of us in here get a big head, let me remind us of a few verses. John chapter 15, verse 5, Jesus said, Apart from me, you can do nothing. 
Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 says, I planted Apollos water, but God gave the growth. So neither who plants or he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. 1 Corinthians 15, 10, Paul speaking about his hard work. He says, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. 2 Corinthians 3, 4, Paul says, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us. Anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. And in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, Paul quoting Jesus. Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. The Apostle Paul again in Philippians 2.13 said, It is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Colossians 1.9, again the Apostle Paul, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works in me. And the author of Hebrews 13, verse 20, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us, that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And finally, the Apostle Peter, in a verse that I have taped right here to remind myself and Deemer and anyone that's in this pulpit where the strength comes from to do anything for God. 1 Peter 4.10 As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that, in order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him, this is still the Apostle Peter's words, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So let me conclude We dishonor God if we go on mission as if God is needy. We glorify God when we do missions as needy people, going to needy people to proclaim the all-sufficiency of the one true God. That's how we do missions. We're needy people going to needy people to proclaim an all-sufficient God. One last story about a lady named Anna, a lady named Gloria, and you. This is Anna. One of the days we were out walking through the village, we were not planning on visiting Anna's house. It wasn't on our stop. The pastor hadn't planned on stopping there, but she she saw us at one of the other houses and came and greeted us and talked to us in the street and invited us into her home. That's her home behind her there. That's her, um, I think her granddaughter that's back there behind her. We went into her home and Pastor Hosea had told us that she had heard the gospel before. And um, so we were in there, and one of our team members decides to share the gospel again with her. And for whatever purposes suit the one true God, on that day her heart was softened. And she heard the gospel, and she believed, as did two of her daughters that were in the house with her. And we left rejoicing and excited, and we went to the next home, which was actually the home we were planning on going to in the first place. And this lady's name is Gloria. And I would say, ironically, her name is Gloria because the word Gloria means glory. And she sat there and listened to us and she was kind, but she was so hard to the gospel. So hard to the gospel. And I left that house that day frustrated after that second visit because we had presented the gospel just as well as we did at the first house. 
And I was reminded once again that it's not about me. It's not about how well we present the gospel. It's about the God who can take even the most pathetic gospel presentation, so long as it is rooted in the truth, and infect the human heart with the gospel so that heart is born again and they believe. And then, for whatever purposes suit God, the heart of some remains hard. What about you this morning? The gospel is quite clear. You are called to turn from your sin, to repent and believe the gospel, that Jesus Christ, the one, the only, the Son of God, God himself, 100% man, 100% God, came to this earth, invaded this earth, this, this creation that he, he made, he is the source of, took on flesh to take God's wrath, his Father's wrath, on behalf of those who belong to him. And so that all who put their faith in him, trust in him, turn from their sin, can receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life. So I pray this morning that there be some in here who are like Anna. Maybe you've heard the gospel many times, but maybe today it's something different and the Lord is softening your heart. And if that be the case, then come, come, profess Jesus as Lord and know him in a way that you never could before. Let's pray. Father, as we get ready to close the service with one song, and Lord, as we think about what you did in Honduras, help us to never think it was anything that we did. Help us remember it's always about you. You don't need us, but you call us to come alongside what you're already doing and participate out of obedience and out of reverence for you and love for you and a desire to see others love you. But God, may that be our motive. There's a lot of reasons that people in churches in America go on mission trips. And a lot of those reasons are wrong. But help us at Harbin's to have the right motivation, the right goal And help us to understand that even the act of going, the act of speaking the gospel to someone, whether it be locally or globally, that in and of itself we cannot do apart from you. So God, help us to see how needy we really are. And may we leave here this morning rejoicing in how all-sufficient you truly are. And so Lord, we pray all this in the precious name of the only one in whom we can find peace and salvation, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.